um, last night, well, first of all, just, uh, just to make a comment, this is the second full day. And what's interesting to me is that this could be a really difficult time. It could be a time when things are really heating up. I looked around several times during the last sit, during the other sits during the day, and I have to tell you that you all looked so peaceful and so angelic and so so totally relaxed. And I think, oh, it's just wonderful. Aren't we doing a wonderful job of <laughs> teaching? <laughs> oh, this is just wonderful. And then we met in our groups. <laughs> and we learned the truth. We learned the truth that there's a lot of pain, physical pain, emotional pain. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of difficult things going on, situational things that are hard. And so I just want to make sure that you know that. Don't believe what you see. It's so easy for us to look at other people and think, wow, they look like they've got it all together. And most of us don't. So just doubt yourself whenever that thought comes to your mind because it's a, it's a judgment against yourself. It's like, wow, they're together and I'm not. I'm sitting here suffering and nobody else is. And I just want to tell you that we all are. And it's actually a good thing for two reasons. One is because you can't grow in this practice or life unless you meet your suffering. And the other thing that happens is that it's really possible to feel so connected to other people knowing that they're not together all the time, especially, and they do suffer. And it's a really a common bond that we share. It's important to reflect on that. So I'll be talking a little bit more about that later. I have a, a title for this, and um, it's a little humorous, and it's, all, it's a little tongue-in-cheek, but it's also a little real. It's my summary of Buddhist teachings in two, t in two different titles. The first one is, You Can Always Make It Worse. <laughs> and the second one is, It's Never Too Late. So the first one has to do with our reactions, and it also has to do with wisdom. And this will be explained as I go along. And the second one really has to do with kindness. It's really never too late to step back and take another look. So I'll explain what I mean by that. I love that you can always make it worse. That comes in so handy so many times. Um, Bob was talking about Vedana this morning. And I love Vedana, and I have to tell you, you should too. Vedana is, again, the feeling tones. I think that's really a strange translation, feeling tones. It gets mixed up with the word feelings, which has to do with emotions. And feeling tone is not quite the same. It's like a little taste, a tiny little flavor. And the flavors that were offered 
were pleasant, unpleasant, and neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Sometimes we call that neutral. So it's actually an absolutely critical thing, a critical link, and we don't pay too much attention to it usually. I bet none of you have done a meditation that's based on Vedana, on just identifying what's pleasant, what's unpleasant, what's neither. It's so, it can be so subtle, it's really hard to do that. It's really hard to identify it as it's coming along. And one of the reasons it's so hard to identify is that there's immediate rush to the next step. The next step from pleasant is liking. And the next step from that is want more or let me have it. And for unpleasant, the next step is don't like it and get it away from me or, or get it out of here. So you can see it's a very quick trajectory from just feeling tone to something much more, to actually what's called clinging and craving. So the reason Vedana is so important is because in this, what's called the 12 links of dependent origination, which is another strange title, but it's all the steps that lead to suffering, to discontent, to this state of being impossible to satisfy, incapable of satisfying, distress. So what's important about the place of Vedana is that it's the weakest link in the chain. If you can notice it, if you can notice it and not go further, you've broken the chain, which means you're not headed towards suffering anymore. And if you're not headed towards suffering, what you have is a cessation, an ending of suffering, whether it's one little thing or some big thing, a cessation. Maybe it's only momentary or more. But the problem is, as I said, identifying that. It is hard. We're usually often running way, uh, way beyond, and we're way beyond Vedana. We're into clinging and craving and suffering. But that's where the second title comes in. It's never too late. It's not too late. Once you recognize where you are, you said, oh my gosh, I've just... I'm, I'm totally obsessing about this, this thing that I want or this thing I don't want or this thing I've tuned out because it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. You can go back, literally. You can go back trying to capture, again, just the feeling tone. What was it like? Just to go back. And that happens not just with Vedana, but many other things. You can go back. You can do it again. It's harder, but it's a way to learn. It's a way to learn how to work with your likes and your dislikes and your craving and your clinging. So that's why I want you to pay attention to Vedana. And... Um, 
Every experience you have, everything, an experience means everything you see, hear, feel, touch, taste, smell, think, everything is paired with that feeling tone. Everything, it's so amazing. And yet we don't, we haven't learned how to pay attention to it. So hope this is just encouragement for you to try. So this, because Bob was talking about Vedana, feeling tone, I had already planned in part to talk about the Salatu, um, I'm going to, Salata Sutta. Try saying that 10 times really fast. Salata Sutta. It's the, it's the teaching about the arrow or sometimes it's called the dart. And I, I have a feeling lots of you are familiar with this. Um, it's such a good one. But as I was reading it again, and again, there's really a lot more to it than I originally thought. This is a, a story of the Buddha teaching the monks about starting with feeling tone. What he's doing I'm going to try to explain this the best I can, is he's explaining the difference between, and the wording of this is kind of fun, an uninstructed, run-of-the-mill worldling. And that's one group. That's somebody who doesn't know the Dharma, who doesn't practice the Dharma. And it might be a lot of us, too. And the other group is an instructed disciple. A disciple would be presumably a disciple of the Buddha, one who knows. So both of them feel pleasure, pain, and neither pleasure nor pain, the three kinds of, of feeling tones that we talked about. But here's the difference. The uninstructed, run-of-the-mill worldling, when confronted with a bodily pain, any kind of body pain, gets really upset. They explain it like laments, grieves, beats their breast, um, a lot of very dramatic things. And that they actually resent and uh, resist the pain. And because of this, it's as if what happens is, well, the other group, the instructed disciples, when confronted with a bodily pain, don't react that way. This is a reaction. We'll talk about what they do do. Um, because of this resistance on the uninstructed worldlings, it's as if someone were hit or pierced with an arrow, and that arrow hurts terribly, that, or that dart. Can you imagine? Somehow the, the imagery and the, the thought of being pierced by an arrow, I'm thinking or a, a dart right here, would really hurt. Um, but because of the resistance and the, dis and the upset and the uproar and the complaining and the resistance and the resentment, it's as if they were pierced by a second arrow. So they have the pain of the first arrow and they have the pain of the second arrow. The first arrow is physical. 
It hurts. There's no doubt about it. It's serious pain. But the second arrow is mental, mental distress. The group of instructed disciples doesn't react, doesn't resent it. They don't yell and scream and complain. They don't grieve and lament. They don't beat their breasts. And so it's as if they were pierced only by one arrow. So they have physical pain. It goes on from here. This is the part to me that's interesting. But I'm going to backtrack just for a second. The pain that one experiences from mental pain isn't like, I'm going to give an example. If the pain level were five from the arrow or the dart, then you would have five. And if you had mental pain too, it's not just adding five. It's multiplying five. That's the increase in pain and discomfort. So you can see that the uninstructed, ordinary, run-of-the-mill worldling has a huge pain quantity to deal with, while the monks, or the monks, the, in- the instructed disciples only have five. They still only have the physical pain. They don't have the results of the mental pain. You know, this is what we do to ourselves, right? We inflict mental pain on ourselves all the time. And we don't just shoot ourselves with one arrow or dart. We shoot ourselves with multiple arrows. Can you imagine that each one of those arrows or darts is increasing the pain so incredibly? So incredibly. What's interesting is the next part. Well... I think it's interesting anyway, is that because the uninstructed group doesn't understand the danger in doing what he or she has done to himself, the complaining, the lamenting, the trying to resist it, getting rid of it, exiling it, all those things that we do, he or she looks for some escape. And the escape is in sense pleasures, maybe eating, maybe drinking, maybe coffee, maybe cigarettes, maybe any form of addiction. Your devices can certainly be a sense pleasure. And so these are all ways that are used to kind of get rid of the pain. And um, they don't actually work. They're like a Band-Aid, a Band-Aid covering something. It doesn't actually heal it. It just covers it up. So the, the looking for the escape through sense pleasure isn't, doesn't work. It's short-term. Oh, it might feel great for a while, but since it doesn't last, that means there's no knowledge of wow, this is only temporary and I'm, I'm pegging my happiness on this temporary stuff. And then I have to go look for something else because that doesn't work anymore. It's already exhausted itself. The instructed group doesn't look for sense pleasure because they know. What they know is that there is an escape from this pain. And the escape is understanding 
basically that all things change. All things arise and pass. This is the nature of all things. It doesn't matter how painful it is. And because the first group, the uninstructed group, doesn't know this, they're, they're ignorant of it. They're ignorant of it, and they never have any what they call mental development. They can't progress. They can't change around this issue. They repeat it over and over the same way, the very same way. That's why in the past I think, how many times do I have to repeat something with <laughs> expecting a different result from the very same thing? It just doesn't work. So maybe you've never done that, but I certainly have many times. But the instructed group understands this. And so there is mental development. And I would say there's not just mental development. It's like dealing with things in this way without trying to escape is builds your capacity. It's sort of like going to the gym and lifting weights. You know, you don't have to start with the most difficult thing in your life, but when you do this, when you work in this way, when you face into pain or discomfort, this, this sutta happened to be about <coughs> bodily pain, but you can see there was mental pain too that was added on. Do you know the word for that in Pali? It's really wonderful. Papancha, proliferation. just has the right, right sound to it. And when you notice yourself doing it, it's much better to call it papancha than proliferation. And you can kind of laugh about it. So um, that's the, the parable or the sutta about the arrow. I guess I'm kind of amazed that we all, and I could hear it today, I could tell you about my own arrows. I've got lots of arrows too. Um, the way we keep doing that, through our resistance, through our not liking the way things are. And the harder we push, the harder we resist, the more we resent, the more mental pain we add to it. So we'll, we will talk about how we can work with it. One thing that is always said is knowing it as it is. Knowing it as it is, not like you wish it were, but as it is. And that takes, it takes some work. It also takes something called equanimity. Equanimity is this ability to be with whatever your experience is. That means whatever comes in through all your senses, including your mind, without push or pull, without pushing it away or wha without grabbing onto it. And there is really a wonderful sense of ease that comes from this. But unfortunately, none of us can fake it. We have to really go through the hard stuff, which is repeating this over and over. So I want to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you, this, this is still in the same theme of um, you can always make it worse. 
I'm going to tell you a little bit about this story ahead of time. It comes from Eastern Europe or Ukraine. And that was an area where in the 1750s, probably to the 1850s, the Jews were forced to live. They were forced to live in little villages called shtetls, and they weren't allowed to go into cities. They weren't allowed to work there. They were very restricted and mostly lived a pretty impoverished life. So this has some relevance to what we're talking about. This is a children's story, but you know, it's really a story for us. There once was a very unfortunate man. He lived in a very small hut with his wife and his six children. And his wife was always arguing and complaining, and his children were always fighting, and it was so noisy, and it was just so crowded. And at a certain point, this very unfortunate man decided he'd had enough. His life was miserable. And so he went to see the rabbi. Holy rabbi, my life is miserable, he said. What can I do? And he explained what was going on. And the rabbi stroked his chin. He said, well, let me see. Well, my good man, do you happen to have any chickens at home? And he looked a little puzzled, but he said, yes. I have a couple chickens and a rooster and a goose. He said, oh, good. Bring them in the house. And so he was a little surprised, but um, are you sure? He said, yes. He said, okay, Rabbi, I'll do anything you say. So he went home and he brought the chickens and the rooster and the goose in his house. And then what happened is his wife was arguing and complaining and his children were fighting and the chickens were, were walking all over and, and flying about and feathers were flying everywhere and the rooster was crowing and the goose was honking and it was noisy, it was even worse. And so he tolerated this for as long as he could, but after about a week, he'd had it. Oh, my life is just miserable, Rabbi. I, I can't take it anymore. Now we have chickens all over the place and feathers in the soup and feathers in the air and we've got honking and, and clucking and, and um, crowing. What can, we, what can I do? Certainly something can be done. And the rabbi thought and he said, well, tell me, my good man, do you happen to have a goat? <laughs> and he said, yes, I do. He said, well, bring, bring him into the house. <laughs> so he thought he was crazy, but he went home and he brought the goat into the house, and now things were really bedlam. The same things were happening, feathers floating, clucking, honking, crowing, children fighting and messing around and wife arguing and complaining, and the goat went crazy, went around butting everything and everyone and trampling everything. It was pretty hard, to say the least. He said his life had turned into a holy hell. <laughs> so he went back to the rabbi and he said, help me, help me, please, my life is hell. What can I do? And he explained, of course, about the clucking and the crowing and the honking and the trampling and the feathers in the soup. And the rabbi said, hmm, tell me, my good man. <laughs> do you happen to have a milk cow? <laughs> and he said, well, yes, I do. 
He said, then bring him into the house. He said, are you sure? Are you crazy? <laughs> so he brought the milk cow into the house, and it was pretty crazy. You know, the cow was mooing and, and trampling on everything, and the goat was butting everyone and everything, and the kids were fighting and messing around, and the wife was arguing, and there was crowing and honking and, and clucking and feathers and everything all over. So he did go back pretty soon after, maybe a week or so. I can't take it anymore. I can't take it. Now my life is ruined. And the rabbi said, okay, you can take them out of the house now. So he went home. He put the cow in the barn, the chicken and the rooster and the, the goose in the pen. And the goat had his own pen, of course. That night, his family slept for the first time in a long time. And they slept so peacefully. And when they woke up, he thought, ah, everything is so peaceful. My life is wonderful. (laughs) So he went back to the rabbi and he said, thank you, rabbi. You've made my life so sweet. And that's the end of the story. So it was fun, fun to read it, fun to tell it, fun to think about it. But a couple of things, this is very typical of some Jewish humor, which has two parts to it. One, there's really a serious component. He lived in poverty. He didn't have a lot of choices. He had a big family in a small space. Pretty challenging. So that's the serious part. And, of course, as I said before, not many possibilities open to people who lived in those conditions. And yet there was humor brought to it, a lot of humor, which makes it possible to bear your suffering. So this is a lesson for all of us. Humor really will make it possible for us to bear a lot of suffering. And um, it's hard, though. We get really serious about that for good reason. It is serious. But if there's any way you can laugh at yourself, it, it's pretty good. It works pretty well. And we all have lots of material we can laugh at. <laughs> I don't think there's anybody here who doesn't have something funny to laugh at, especially yourself. The other part of this is that think what happened this was more papancha, right? We kept adding one kind of suffering onto another kind of suffering onto another kind of suffering, and it just grew and grew and grew. And what started out as just a small house with children and, and a man and a woman and the cow and the goat and the chickens and everything in their places, th- oh, they all got piled up together, and it, and it created bedlam. Mental, physical, emotional bedlam. And so I think that's what we do too with our pain or our suffering. We add so much to it. But you know, it wasn't even too late for him. It's not too late for you either to turn back, to try again, to see what you can learn about it. Learn about your suffering. Learn about how not in a blaming way, how you 
add to it. If you blame yourself, you're just going to be adding more suffering. If you're angry at yourself, if you, um, if you shame yourself, if you do any of those things, you're just adding more to it. For some reason, we think that helps, and it doesn't. It just doesn't. So yes, it helps to take a, a sober look at what's going on, but it doesn't help to keep taking that whip out and hurting yourself. So it's really a, a template for us, I think, that um, if we can use humor and if we can use um, kind of a sober look at what's going on without hating it or hating ourselves, we're in much better shape. We're in much, much, we are setting the groundwork for being able to work with our suffering, with our discontent of body, <coughs> heart, and mind. So I kind of wanted to bring up a very ordinary thing that is distressing to people in meditation practice. And it's the itch. Has anybody experienced an itch during meditation? Ever? Not so many? <laughs> really? Yeah, reach your hand. And intense. Doesn't it get intense when you're meditating? And it's so interesting to me because it's so, I mean, it, it's, I like to say it's harmless, but I have to explain that it's not really true. It's, it's harmless. You won't die with that itch. And your legs aren't going to fall off. Um, nothing serious is going to happen. But resisting the itch, is that hard? Though you want to scratch it. And um, it's really compelling. It's really compelling. And what happens if you do scratch an itch? Does anybody have the experience of scratching poison oak? Yeah, it doesn't make it better. I've had some other itches too that were worse than poison oak and uh, interesting, interesting. But anyway, during meditation, um, that's the kind of physical sensation that would come up that could be an object for you to really work with as a discomfort, as a bodily pain. It's not going to hurt you, and yet it really is irritating. At least it is for me. Um, uh, Bruce mentioned that we have been teaching in a prison for quite some time, and one of the things we did at one time is we had a newspaper for the men who were in the programs at our prison and one that's right next to it. And this is uh, a piece in this newspaper that one of the inmates wrote, and it's called Conquering the Itch. And it's really, it's both funny and, and instructive. It shows a lot of wisdom too. He was a, a very difficult person to work with at first, really angry, um, which doesn't seem like a surprise, but everybody we work with isn't angry like that. 
And at one time we had to pull him aside and say, you know, you can't continue with this behavior. I don't quite even remember what it is. Do you remember what it was? Just disruptive. Yeah, disruptive. And, and so he said, really? I mean, he had no idea that that's what he was doing. And he said, just give me a signal. And so we did. The next time something like that happened, it was just a very subtle hand signal of some sort, and that was the last time it happened. So this, like thinking everybody is all together who you see because they look like they're peaceful and calm and, and handling everything really well, this is true too. We, our perception of other people is so incorrect. Um, we didn't have a, he didn't have a clue that he was coming off that way. He had no idea whatsoever. So <clears throat> I'm going to read just part of it. He was talking about how he'd been part of the group for seven years and so much that he had gotten from it was in sharing and talking about sharing and being vulnerable. This is pretty amazing for this particular population, but that's what happens. Um, <clears throat> it was during one of these sessions and exchanges that I learned to master the art of sitting through that ever-pervasive itch that always seems to become a nuisance to us when we first start meditating and even after we first start. Mastering sitting through that itch is significant because in life we often encounter an endless labyrinth of itches that adds to our suffering. The itch of having an inconsiderate neighbor, the itch of hearing a leaking faucet at 2 a.m., the itch of having an inattentive lover or significant other. If you can make the connection between these real-life situations and that inappropriate itch you dare not scratch during a group session of meditation, then you understand how overcoming the one translates into conquering the other. My most recent experiences with coping with suffering have come in simple recognition of my suffering as a process in and of itself, as opposed to feeling the need to resist, change, or do something to put an end to suffering that ultimately has been and always will be a part of our reality. Even as I write this, I find myself in the midst of some very heavy drama that's trans translated, that means there's a lot of stuff going on in the prison that could escalate. That I previously would be sure to respond to in the most destructive ways. However, the consciousness I've gained from the group here is a very present reminder that I simply must be. So even the fact that suffering is going to always be with us, very present, just present part of the reality. And also the itch. The itch is another metaphor for other problems that we'll deal with, other challenges. This is a little quote about pain. Don't we know only too well that protection from pain doesn't work? And that when we try to defend ourselves from suffering, we only suffer more. 
and don't learn what we can from the experience. As Rilke wrote, the protected heart that is never exposed to loss, innocent and secure, cannot know tenderness. Only the one back heart can ever be satisfied, free through all it is given up to rejoice in its mastery. The protected heart can't know this love and can't know this mastery. But I don't know anyone who hasn't been exposed to loss. So I think we're all safe. So I was asked to speak something about um, the hindrances. Most of you, or maybe not most of you, have heard of the hindrances. I don't like the word, personally. It sounds like something permanent, like a roadblock, or a, although roadblocks aren't permanent, something very substantially as an obstruction. And instead, I'd like to call it a challenge, a helpful challenge. And the reason hindrances are helpful challenges because they help us to notice and to work with certain mind states that are ver probably all very familiar to you. Um, something that's really interesting is that I, I did come across a very short teaching that said, you know, the mind is luminous, but sometimes it's visited by adventitious defilements. Adventitious means temporary. The mind is luminous, it's bright, it's aware. But sometimes it's visited by greed, hatred, and delusion. That should be good news to all of us because they're just visitors. There's a Pali word for it, aguntanka. It means a newcomer or a visitor. So that's what they are. They're just visitors. The problem, and this actually came out in the sutta about the arrow too, what happens is that we are conjoined with our, with our suffering or with a, we take it on as us. I am a person who can't. I'm a person who can. We identify with it. We take it on as ours. And that's what these adventitious visitors are telling us, that we're only temporary. We don't belong to you. We're just coming and we're going to go. We can help them go and we can help them stay according to how we react. Temporary. Only temporary. And because they're visitors, there are, a lot of, um, there are a lot of poets who talk about visitors. Bob mentioned Rumi, and I have the guest house with me, which is the poem he was quoting. Also, there's a poet named Naomi Shahib Nye who talks about visitors. And she says, we feed them. We don't ask them questions. 
we, we treat them as honored guests. We feed them. We, water, we get, bring water for their horses. We give them whatever they need. And after three days or so, we've been so busy we forgot to ask about their names. So it's this idea that you could treat visitors well, even if they're not the visitors that you wished for. So this is, this is the poem by Rumi called The Guest House. You know, guest houses were where people traveling would stay overnight. And it wouldn't be a house where you knew somebody. It was just a house that was open to people coming. This is a different kind of guest house. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sleep, sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. These visitors aren't necessarily kind. They're the unwanted, the challenging, the difficult. But we're encouraged to invite them in, get to know them, feed them, entertain them, even if they're a crowd of sorrows. Even the dark thoughts, the meanness, the malice, those are visitors we need to get to know too. This has been a really important poem for me. Because I've had these same visitors come to my door. I think that's what he's saying, that as a human being, that's what happens. We get everything. <coughs> so they are challenges. These are challenges to work with. And that's what the hindrances are. They're all challenges. They're they're related to a lot of the other things we've been talking about. There's the wanting mind, what you want, what you have to have. This you can perhaps identify with this as you're meditating, not just meditating though, but in life, what you have to have. And there's the mind of ill will, the mind that doesn't want. We've talked about that kind of aversion, pushing things away getting rid of them in some way. 
There's sloth and torpor. We've talked a lot about that. Body sluggishness, sluggishness and mind kind of losing it, being kind of dull. And the, it's, it's a twin, or not it's twin, it's flip side. Restlessness and worry. Kind of uh, a restless energy that doesn't want to settle. And the last one is doubt. So I'm going to say a few things about it. In one of the suttas, there is a, a Brahmin who comes to the Buddha and he said, basically says, I can't remember some of the verses that I used to recite and I can't understand why. And the Buddha says, well, um, if you give um, inappropriate attention to some of these, this is what's going to happen. You will look, it's as if you were looking in a bowl of water, trying to see your reflection. And this is a metaphor for trying to know things as they are, as they really are, not as we wish them. And if this wanting mind is involved, it's as if the water had been dyed with all kinds of dyes red dye and blue dye and yellow dye, and you can't see through it. S that means you really don't know things as they are. This is when your mind is obsessed, clouded by wanting. If your mind is obsessed and clouded by ill will, hatred, aversion, it's as if you had heated that bowl up on a fire and it was boiling and roiling and you looked into it, and again, you couldn't see your reflection. You couldn't see things as they really are. For sloth and torpor, it's as if the bowl were covered by plants and algae, just this thick covering, and there's no way to see through it, no way to see things as they are. And for restlessness and worry, it's as if that bowl were stirred by the wind, and it was creating all kinds of patterns, wave patterns and ripples and so on. And again, you couldn't see your reflection and you couldn't see things as they are. And the last one, doubt, is like a bowl that's muddy, lots of muddy water, not moving, very dark. And again, looking into that, you can't see your reflection. So when your mind has these qualities, don't forget, though, they're visitors. They're adventitious visitors, all of these hindrances. They're not who you are, and they don't define you. But they do show up at the door sometimes, in the middle of meditation. And maybe you notice that there's one particular one that keeps showing up. So um, I said I would say something about closing the doors quietly. The one that shows up for me a lot is um, probably aversion, or it used to a whole lot more than it does now. And I was on a six-week retreat once at um, Insight Meditation Society in, on the East Coast, 
and I expected everybody would be quiet and respectful and, you know, this is a retreat of experienced people mostly. And there were a lot of people, as they walked through the hallways, it sounded like they had 20 to 30 pound boots that they were clomping and doors were slammed shut all the time. And oh, it was really bothering me. Um, I think that the way I handled it was I was really pissed off. <laughs> and, and then, and as I lived with it for a while, I decided to write a note to the teacher. We were allowed to write some notes. And excuse me, no, I actually had an interview with the teacher. And I said, this is like, this is like the poor unfortunate man. This is driving me crazy. You know, there's so much noise. I thought it was going to be quiet. There's clomping in the, in the hallway and there's slamming doors. And she looked at me and she said, well, of course, you're an aversive. <laughs> and I thought, what? So um, it was actually a relief. Somebody had said, it's not you. It's because this is the, you know, your tendency is toward this. To, to backtrack, she she and many kind of tongue-in-cheek divide us all into three groups. Aversive, greedy, or delusional. <laughs> we all have, you know, pieces of all of that, but we have a bigger piece of one of those. Mine was definitely aversive. So the way you know, maybe you know already, is when you walk into a room, if ever you see all the things you like and you want them, you're an aversive. I mean, you're a greedy type. If all you can do is see things that you don't like and you'd like to change or get rid of, then you're an aversive type. If you don't notice anything, then you're a delusional type. <laughs> so she said, of course, you're, you're an aversive type. And I th she said, you know, aversives are really sensitive to light and sound. And she named all these things. And I thought, well, that's really true. And, and um, it sort of depersonalized it. I could be that. I could be that. And once I knew that, I could start paying more attention to it, noticing when it came up. And, and I didn't have to go through with it. So I, I see Bruce looking at me. I could say, ask him. <laughs> Is it true? <laughs> I I gave him money for it, <laughs> for the right answer. Um, no, it is. It's true. It really is helpful just to recognize that. That's why, I mean, humor helps a little bit. If you say, okay, so what? I'm a greedy type. Then you can laugh about it. Then you can notice that when it's coming up. And you don't have, you can, instead of reacting and having to have something, you can have some space. You can actually respond. Do I want that? Do I really need that? How does it feel to sit with this for a while and feel the bodily sensation of wanting? How does it feel to sit for the, with this for a while, to feel the bodily sensation of trying to get rid of? That allows you to make a response instead of a reaction. And, um, and it's helpful finding out what all these things 
you know, indicate that was good for me to hear that, oh, yeah, I am sensitive to those things. I even was told by my mother that I used to stand in the corner of my crib and if there was light coming in, I'd cry. I wanted her to change, change me to a different place. So um, I guess it was in there for a long time. I just looked at the clock for the first time and it's pretty late. So what I want to say to you is that um, if you can remember all the ways we have of making it worse, we can make it worse. It's easy. It's easy. But it's harder to live with it. So it's worth exploring. And it's also worth having a sense of humor about it if you possibly can. And also um, in your meditation practice and in um, life, more importantly, see if you can tell when these things come up. These are just particular challenges. The wanting, the not wanting, the losing energy, restlessness and worry and doubt. But they're not obstacles. None of them are obstacles. They're challenges. And remember, it's the, the protected heart never goes anywhere, never learns. And the fact that you're here, here practicing, you showed up for the retreat, you're showing up every day, this is hard work. So you're exposing yourself. You're making yourself vulnerable. You're letting your heart not have to be so guarded. And uh, I hope you feel the goodness of that, whether you think you're making progress or not. So the things to remember is that you can always make it worse, but it's never too late. Thank you.